Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. First Nephi, chapter 14, is the final chapter in Nephi's grand panoramic vision. It begins by zooming in, in a way, on the aspect of the vision that Nephi sees at the very end of chapter 13, where the restored gospel comes forth, thanks to the plain and precious things that are restored to scriptural canon in the form of other records. This allows for the first and last sequence that we read about at the end of chapter 13 to commence, where the Gentiles have the opportunity to accept the word and to become numbered among the seed of the house of Israel. So the first portion of chapter 14, will discuss that in greater detail. Since Nephi is still moving chronologically in his vision, the chapter concludes with a discussion of the one who will see the same things, the Apostle John, and who will have the assignment to write about these things. The first two verses in the chapter, verses 1 and 2, discuss this possibility of Gentiles repenting and becoming Israelites. The next section, extending from verses 3 to 7, introduced the idea of a great and marvelous work, as it says in verse 7. They discuss what we might call the the inevitable or the millennial endpoint of this marvelous work, the endpoint for those who oppose this work, who ultimately, as it says in verse 3, will be cast into a hell which hath no end, and also discusses the Gentiles, starting in verse 5, saying that if they repent, it shall be well with them. Ultimately, as verse 7 explains, these two parties will find themselves in a state of peace and life eternal, or being brought down into captivity and also into destruction, according to the captivity of the devil. So we'll talk about all of those things. Verses 8 through 12 discuss the presence of both churches upon the face of the earth, explaining that there are, save two churches only, as it says in verse 10. We then read in verses 13 through 17 of a war that takes place between these two churches. And this brings us to the very end of the chronology of Nephi's vision. Before closing, however, Nephi's angelic guide in verse 18 introduces a new scene to him by saying, Look. And at that point, Nephi sees John, the revelator. John's role in writing what he has seen is discussed up through verse 24. And then Nephi's assignment, as it relates to what he has seen, is discussed in verse 25 saying that the things which thou, meaning Nephi, shalt see hereafter, thou shalt not write. 
This passage ends in verse 29, and then we have a concluding verse, in verse 30, where Nephi closes his account of the vision by saying, Now I make an end of speaking concerning the things which I saw while I was carried away in the Spirit. We'll move now to a discussion of the Gentiles and their potential for repenting and being numbered among the house of Israel as we return to the top of the chapter and make our way through verse by verse. So verse 1 says, And it shall come to pass that if the Gentiles shall hearken unto the Lamb of God, in that day that he shall manifest himself unto them in word and also in power, in very deed unto the taking away of their stumbling blocks, and harden not their hearts against the Lamb of God, they shall be numbered among the seed of thy father, yea, they shall be numbered among the house of Israel, and they shall be a blessed people upon the promised land for ever. They shall be no more brought down into captivity, and the house of Israel shall no more be confounded. And so these Gentiles can become a blessed people upon the promised land forever, but this is a conditional promise. We see the word if in verse 1, if the Gentiles, if they shall hearken unto the Lamb of God, and if they harden not their hearts, as it says in verse 2, then, so those are the conditions, they shall be numbered among the seed of thy father. Verse 1 conveys this idea spoken of previously that when the gospel is restored and carried to all the earth, that it is done so in word and also in power, as it says in verse 1. It sounds a lot like 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men ye were among you for your sake. So this is the solution that was posed in the previous chapter where plain and precious things had been removed and the effect of that was discussed. So here, the word and the power has been restored and now it's giving the opportunity to the Gentiles to have their stumbling blocks removed. This term stumbling block is used in many verses in Scripture Isaiah chapter 57 verse 14 says, And shall ye say, Cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Ezekiel chapter 7 verse 19, They shall cast their silver in the streets, and their gold shall be removed. Their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They shall not satisfy their souls, neither fill their bowels, because it is the stumbling block of their iniquity. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 says, We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. What are these stumbling blocks in this instance? Because as we can see in verse 2, they have a confounding effect upon the Gentiles. It would be that their word had been rested, that their word was lacking the plain and precious truths that led them directly to the fountain of living waters, to the Lamb who was slain. Instead, these concepts were covered or obfuscated, and this created a stumbling block for the understanding of the Gentiles, and and of course that continues to this day. Having them taken away 
requires that those who are so confounded will recognize the voice of the Lord's authorized servants when it is presented to them. It might make us think of Doctrine and Covenants section 29, verse 7, that says, You are called to bring to pass the gathering of mine elect. For mine elect hear my voice, and harden not their hearts. And, most appropriately, as we can see in verse 2, it starts off with the very same phrase, And harden not their hearts against the Lamb of God. Another way to put this is that those who will have their stumbling blocks removed are those who will come unto me, as it says in Ether, chapter 12, verse 27. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. We often think of this scripture in the sense of personal flaws or failings, but in this case it's being related to the stumbling blocks that were um, obstructing the Gentiles' ability to understand the word. And so it says, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me, think again of the beginning of verse 2, and harden not their hearts against the Lamb of God, and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. And so in this particular instance, these weak things could be interpreted as the biblical record, which, as we discussed in the previous chapter, had lost many plain and precious truths, thereby making it a weak thing. And then with the acceptance of additional records and plain and precious truths, then this weak thing can be strong unto the Gentiles. The result, again, in verse 2, is that these members these new members of the house of Israel, these Gentiles who are now numbered among the house of Israel, shall no more be confounded. Here's a helpful piece of commentary from McConkie and Millet. With the restoration of things plain and precious, Israel need no more be scattered or confounded. The Book of Mormon, in particular, is the instrument prepared by God to bring about the gathering of Israel in the last days in two ways. One, it provides a description of Israel's condition the causes for the scattering, as well as the means whereby she is to be gathered. And two, it provides the specific prescription for accomplishing the task of gathering, namely through the Book of Mormon itself. In short, the Book of Mormon is the scriptural record ordained to accomplish the Father's work. As we move into verse 3 now, we're about to project farther into the future with Nephi. And to see something that, as we know, Uh, really won't happen until the millennium as we talk about the pit and how there will be utter and ultimate destruction to those who dug it in the first place. We can remember as we read uh, Nephi's description of this that it's possible for him to move forward in time very rapidly. His, His visionary perspective allows for a survey of events that can span even different epochs, uh, like John did in his great vision. And really, this is something that Isaiah does, and sometimes Isaiah will do this within one verse. So as we move into verse 3, we can just know that this doesn't have ultimate fulfillment until actually the end of the millennium. It says, And that great pit, which hath been digged for them by that great and abominable church, 
which was founded by the devil and his children, that he might lead away souls of men, the souls of men, down to hell. Yea, that great pit, which hath been digged for the destruction of men, shall be filled by those who digged it unto their utter destruction, saith the Lamb of God, not the destruction of the soul, save it be the casting of it into that hell which hath no end. This might remind us of the end of chapter 11 of Nephi's vision, where the great and spacious building falls. That too is, is, is kind of an ultimate event. It's a reminder that as we're seeing this conflict playing out in subsequent verses of this vision between the two churches, which we'll read a great deal about, that we know what the end looks like. We know what the ultimate end will be. It, it will be victory for the Lamb of God and for those who follow him. And it most certainly will be dis- defeat and ruin for the adversary. Ultimately, again, as this verse says, he will be led back to the pit. And this is a um, is an image that we see in the book of Revelation as well, where at the end of the millennium, Satan is ultimately locked up in this pit. The metaphor of a pit appears several times in the scriptures. We can think of even of the time that Joseph of Egypt was cast into a pit by his brothers. In a way... Um, our state of separation from God in our mortal journey is something like uh, traversing the depths of a pit where uh, we find deliverance through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the great irony of this verse is that those who dug this pit so that they might lead away the souls of men down to hell they are the ones who ultimately shall fill that pit. Doctrine and Covenants section 109 verse 25 makes this clear. That no weapon formed against them shall prosper, that he who diggeth a pit for them shall fall into the same himself. Regarding the phrase at the end of this verse, which references a hell which hath no end, we have this commentary from Ogden and Skinner. The devil and the church established by him work to lead the souls of men to hell. Hell is part of the post-mortal world of spirits where the wicked suffer but have the opportunity to repent. The other part of the post-mortal spirit world is called paradise. Both paradise and hell have an end in the resurrection. When Nephi says that hell hath no end, He is undoubtedly referring to the fact that the punishment suffered in hell is endless because God is endless, and therefore God's punishment is endless. And section 19 uh, talks about that. An endless hell of never-ending torment is reserved for the sons of perdition, who inherit no kingdom of glory. All but the sons of perdition are saved in the sense that all receive a kingdom of glory. Nephi also teaches that hell is a place. Verse 4 tells us why this is. For behold, this is according to the captivity of the devil, and also according to the justice of God, upon all those who will work wickedness and abomination before him. The captivity of the devil, as it says here, is undoubtedly the means by which he takes others captive. But interesting, 
ultimately it is ultimately the means by which the devil himself will be captive again referring to the pit into which he is ultimately cast in John's vision the idea of captivity is worth considering for a moment the captivity of the devil and his intentions to uh, capture others into this pit that he has dug. Another word that the scriptures sometimes use is snare. The snare of the devil is a phrase that's used in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. Also in 2 Timothy, uh, Peter uh, refers to this as bondage, to be brought in bondage. Nephi will later reference chains in 2 Nephi chapter 1, verse 13, saying, Shake off the awful chains by which ye are bound. Lehi will teach in the next chapter that the will of the flesh giveth the devil power to captivate. Verse 5 says, And it came to pass that the angel spake unto me, Nephi, saying, Thou hast beheld that if the Gentiles repent, it shall be well with them. And thou also knowest concerning the covenants of the Lord unto the house of Israel. And thou also hast heard that whoso repenteth not must perish. So now we've talked about the ultimate end of the devil and his followers in verses 3 and 4. And we're returning to a discussion of the Gentiles and uh, learning again that if they repent, it shall be well with them. So this is repeating that previous promise. The final phrase in this verse that says, Whoso repenteth not must perish, has broad applications to all, not just Gentiles. It uh, is literally true, as President Nelson has recently taught, that repentance is critical for the progress of all mankind. He said the following in the April 2019 General Conference, Too many people consider repentance as punishment something to be avoided except in the most serious circumstances. But this feeling of being penalized is engendered by Satan. He tries to block us from looking to Jesus Christ, who stands with open arms, hoping and willing to heal, forgive, cleanse, strengthen, purify, and sanctify us. The word for repentance in the Greek New Testament is metanoeho. The prefix meta means change. The suffix noeo is related to Greek words that mean mind, knowledge, spirit, and breath. Thus, when Jesus asks you and me to repent, he is inviting us to change our mind, our knowledge, our spirit, even the way we breathe. He is asking us to change the way we love, think, serve, spend our time, treat our wives, teach our children, and even care for our bodies. Nothing is more liberating, more ennobling, or more crucial to our individual progression than is a regular, daily focus on repentance. Repentance is not an event. It is a process. It is the key to happiness and peace of mind. When coupled with faith, repentance opens our access to the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Nephi is most certainly in sync with that teaching because that's what the stumbling block is about. It's about having something placed in the way of the Gentiles that prevents them from accessing the atoning power of Jesus Christ. In a way, I I think it could be said that we too are victims to the same stumbling block if we do not turn to the Word 
and study it carefully and with the guidance of the Holy Ghost. Uh, Because if we do not, then the net result is the same as that of the Gentiles who didn't have access to it at all. Therefore, says verse 6, Woe be unto the Gentiles, if it so be that they harden their hearts against the Lamb of God. So now it's a cautionary tone following this promise that we've learned about. Second uh, Nephi chapter 28, verse 32 says, Woe be unto the Gentiles, saith the Lord of God of hosts, for notwithstanding I shall lengthen out mine arm unto them from day to day, they will deny me. Nevertheless, I will be merciful unto them, saith the Lord God, if they will repent and come unto me, for mine arm is lengthened out all the day long, saith the Lord God of hosts. Then verse 7 says, For the time cometh, saith the Lamb of God, that I will work a great and a marvelous work among the children of men, a work which shall be everlasting, either on the one hand or on the other, either to the convincing of them unto peace and life eternal, or unto the deliverance of them to the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds, unto their being brought down into captivity, and also into destruction, both temporally and spiritually, according to the captivity of the devil, of which I have spoken. So in the middle of this verse, we see the phrase, either on the one hand or on the other, indicating that there are two paths available with two different ends. Um, these two paths will be reflected below when we learn that there are two churches only. So we'll be able to talk about it more. In that context, this is something that Jeremiah expressed. In Jeremiah chapter 21, verse 8, he says, And unto this people thou shalt say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. So two separate paths. As Nephi says, unto peace and life eternal, or unto the captivity of the devil, which ends in in destruction, both temporally and spiritually. The phrase great and marvelous, President Nelson has called this a miraculous miracle before, and it has reference to the restoration of the gospel and the organization of the church. In addition to miraculous miracle, we can say that the word great means significant or meaningful, and marvelous means something wonderful or incomprehensible. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland said, This church, the great institutional body of Christ, is a marvelous work and a wonder, not only because of what it does for the faithful, but also because of what the faithful do for it. Your lives are at the very heart of that marvel. You are evidence of the wonder of it all. We can also notice that this great and marvelous work is described as being everlasting in this verse. And here's an interesting comment by Rodney Turner out of an article called The Prophet Nephi. The marvelous work of the latter days was to be everlasting in its consequences. The choice between salvation and damnation would be final and irrevocable. For in the final analysis, there have been but two paths lying before the family of God. All walk one or the other. This concept is now extended into the next section of the chapter, which talks about two churches only. 
This will then take us into a war between these two churches, a final showdown of sorts, uh, much in the same way that uh, the, the book of Revelation, John's Revelation, winds up. This war between these two churches is undoubtedly another way of expressing the concept of the war that began in heaven that is now playing out in the second estate. And it will continue until it is resolved in the end. And we've had a sneak preview to the end earlier in this chapter. We know how it will end. It will end with Satan being cast into the pit. It would do us well, we've talked about this at other times, but to remember that there, there is not true parity between these two competing sides. This is not like the battle between Coriantumr and Shiz in the book of Ether, where as a reader, you're not sure who the winner will be. This battle is only allowed to continue, or only is continuing, because Satan is being allowed for a season to rant upon the earth and play a specific role in the plan. During this season, and this seems to be the case for all those who follow Satan and who are unrepentant, uh, he seems to be allowed some insulation from the personal torment that his own deeds will cause him, but ultimately that will catch up to him. That time will come, as outlined in Revelation, and he will be cast down to the pit and assigned to an everlasting hell that really is of his own making. So with that known end in mind, let's go to verse 8 and discuss these two churches. And it came to pass that when the angel had spoken these words, he said unto me, Rememberest thou the covenants of the Father unto the house of Israel? I said unto him, Yea. And it came to pass that he said unto me, Look, and behold that great and abominable church, which is the mother of abominations, whose founder is the devil. And he said unto me, Behold, there are saved two churches only. The one is the church of the Lamb of God, and the other is the church of the devil. Wherefore, whoso belongeth not to the church of the Lamb of God, belongeth to that great church, which is the mother of abominations, and she is the whore of all the earth. Again, this reflects the concept that there are really only two ways that we can go as we've discussed previously, and and one way has been described by the Savior as the broad way. And the other way that leads to life eternal is the narrow way. And it really ultimately is one or the other, as all people are are impelled forward, as Bruce R. McConkie said when describing the great and abominable church, by their own innate religious impulses. Nephi will later say it this way in 2 Nephi chapter 10, verse 16, Wherefore, he that fighteth against Zion, both Jew and Gentile, both bond and free, both male and female, shall perish. For they are they who are the whore of all the earth. For they are who are not for me, or for they who are not for me are against me, saith our God. This phrase at the end of the verse, whore of all the earth, reminds us of the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 17, verse 15. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So, of course, the image of a whore 
was also used by John. Uh, that that imagery really uh, evokes the, the, an illegitimate relationship. It's a relationship that's not being expressed within the context of a covenant. Um, we can think of it in the context of the marriage metaphor between the bridegroom, or which is Christ, and his church. Uh, in that metaphor, the bride is his wife. But this, this whore of all the earth, is a counterfeit bride who engages in relations that are analogous to consummation, but who has no right to do so. It hasn't been sanctioned. It's an unholy union. This, of course, is not to say in verse 10 that there will be two sects only, S-E-C-T-S, but there are two churches only. And remember that a church is a system for salvation, or, in the case of the adversary, a system for claiming souls. J. Reuben Clark said the following, As this work progresses on its onward course and becomes more and more an object of political and religious interest and excitement, no king, ruler, or subject, no community or individual will stand neutral. All will at length be influenced by one spirit or the other, and all will take sides for e either for or against the kingdom of God. And the fulfillment of the prophets in the great restoration and return of his long-dispersed covenant people. Now this verse, verse 11, sounds very similar to the, to the verse that I read previously from Revelation chapter 17. And it came to pass that I looked and beheld the whore of all the earth, and she sat upon many waters, and she had dominion over all the earth, among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. Jeremiah seems to have seen the same image, because in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 13, it says, O thou that dwellest upon many waters, abundant in treasures, thine end is come, and the measure of thy covetousness. So with the image of this great horror uh, of all the earth, we're learning about the scope of the influence of the great and abominable church, that it's among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. Doctrine and Covenants section 35, verse 11, says, Babylon, the same which has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. As with the book of Revelation, we can liken Babylon to this great and abominable church. Now the other church, the church of the Lamb of God, its presence on the earth is described in verse 12. And it came to pass that I beheld the church of the Lamb of God, and its numbers were few. Because of the wickedness and abominations of the whore who sat upon many waters, nevertheless I beheld that the church of the Lamb, who were the saints of God, were also upon all the face of the earth, and their dominions upon the face of the earth were small, because of the wickedness of the great whore whom I saw. So the members of this church, the factions of this church, are upon all the face of the earth. But its numbers are few compared to those of the great and abominable church. It might make us think of the hymn, Let Us All Press On, and how it says, Though our numbers may be few when compared with the opposite host in view. 
And that really reminds us, too, that Israel throughout Scripture has always been a minority faction, something that I've expressed before. And, and this is reflected, again, in the narrow way versus the broad way. Matthew chapter 7, verse 14 says, Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Doctrine and Covenants, section 138, verse 26, and this is Joseph F. Smith's vision, Smith's vision of the redemption of the dead. And yet, notwithstanding his mighty works and miracles, and proclamation of the truth and great power and authority, there were but few who hearkened to his voice and rejoiced in his presence and received salvation at his hands. Prusar McConkie said in the Millennial Messiah, This pertains to a day yet future. The saints of the Most High are not yet as a people and with organized congregations established upon all the face of the earth. When the day comes that they are, they still will not compare in power with the forces of evil. Even then, as Nephi foresaw, their dominions upon the face of the earth were small because of the wickedness of the great whore whom I saw. Now that we have this picture of these two churches and the way that they sit upon the earth and their relative numbers, uh, we see how they come to fight against each other. Or more accurately, how the great and abominable church gathers together to fight against the Lamb of God. Verse 13 says, And it came to pass that I beheld that the great mother of abominations did gather together multitudes upon the face of all the earth, among all the nations of the Gentiles, to fight against the Lamb of God. John sees something similar in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 6. And I saw the woman. Remember, Nephi just called it the mother of abomination. And John says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Revelation chapter 18, verse 24, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. Here is some insight into what this war would look like by Brant A. Gardner in an article called Second Witness. Where is this war? Where is it fought? It is waged every day in our communities and our nations. It is waged over airwaves and print. It is waged in quiet and subtle ways, but is a war nonetheless. Anything that takes us down the other path cannot lead us to salvation. We live on a battlefield. While the vision of the discovery of the new world was describing a particular war or set of wars, this one is symbolic rather than literal. Now as this conflict continues, we read in verse 14, And it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld the power of the Lamb of God, that it descended upon the saints of the church of the Lamb, and upon the covenant people of the Lord, who were scattered upon all the face of the earth, and they were armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. We might remember how the great battle took a turn in the book of Revelation, when the writer arrived on a white horse. Here in verse 14 we read that the power of the Lamb of God descended upon the saints of the church. And then it adds, and upon the covenant people of the Lord, suggesting to us that this power descending upon the people was a function of this covenant relationship. This concept was alluded to by the Savior in the book of Luke, 
verse 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 49. And behold, I send the promise of my Father unto you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Other references of the power of the Lamb of God descending upon his covenant people include the 38th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 38. See that all things are preserved, and when men are endowed with power from on high and sent forth, all these things shall be gathered unto the bosom of the church. Jacob, chapter 6, verse 2, And the day that he shall set his hand again the second time to recover his people is the day, yea, even the last time, that the servants of the Lord shall go forth in his power to nourish and prune his vineyard, and after that the end soon cometh. Elder Maxwell has had much to say about this image of saints being armed with righteousness and power. He said, So let us look at ourselves. For the church, the scriptures suggest both an accelerated sifting and accelerated spiritual numerical growth, with all this preceding the time when the people of God will be armed with righteousness, not weapons, and when the Lord's glory will be poured out upon them. The Lord is determined to have a tried, pure, and proven people, and there is nothing that the Lord thy God shall take in his heart to do but that he will do it. Which is a quote from Abraham chapter 3, verse 17. On another occasion, Elder Maxwell said, Church members have a special rendezvous to keep, brothers and sisters. Nephi saw it. One future day, he said, Jesus' covenant people, scattered upon all the face of the earth, will be armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. And he's referencing again 1 Nephi chapter 14, verse 14. This will happen, but only after more members become more saintly and more consecrated in conduct. Now verse 15, And it came to pass that I beheld that the wrath of God was poured out upon that great and abominable church, insomuch that there were wars and rumors of wars among all the nations and kindreds of the earth. So now we see how this battle is playing out. And the idea of it being poured out might make us think of the angels with bowls or vials in Revelation that are pouring out cursings and plagues. Verse 16, And as there began to be wars and rumors of wars among all the nations which belonged to the mother of abominations, the angel spake unto me, saying, Behold, the wrath of God is upon the mother of harlots, and behold, thou seest all these things. Verse 17, And when the day cometh that the wrath of God is poured out upon the mother of harlots, which is the great and abominable church of all the earth, whose founder is the devil. Then at that day, the work of the Father shall commence in preparing the way for the fulfilling of his covenants, which he hath made to his people who are of the house of Israel. Third Nephi chapter 20, verse 20, expresses something similar, but in different ways. And it shall come to pass, saith the Father, so remember we just read about the work of the Father in that verse, that the sword of my justice shall hang over them at that day, and except they repent, it shall fall upon them, saith the Father, yea, even upon all the nations of the Gentiles. First Nephi chapter 21, verse 26, says, And I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh. They shall be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine, and all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, 
the Mighty One of Jacob. This phrase, the work of the Father, also shows in 3 Nephi 21 and 26, And then shall the work of the Father commence at that day, even when this gospel shall be preached among the remnant of this people. Verily I say unto you, At that day shall the work of the Father commence among all the dispersed of my people, yea, even the tribes which have been lost, which the Father hath led away out of Jerusalem. So that is the work of the Father that will commence, that Nephi is referring to in verse 17. The um, McConkie and Millet commentary says, The work of the Father, the work of gathering of Israel, the missionary thrust of the Latter-day Saints, shall go forward with accelerated force when the Lord has displaced the devil and cleansed the earth of the violence and wickedness on its surface. All Israel, the ten tribes included, shall then be gathered in great numbers. This brings us to the end of this section in this chapter, and we can see that this vision of Nephi's is moving into the atop, uh, the apocalyptic domain, <laughs> really, that, that is covered by John the Revelator. So Nephi does not write further, and it's appropriate then, of course, that we're about to meet John the Revelator. So signaling a switch in scenes, we might say, in this vision, verse 18 says, And it came to pass that the angel spake unto me, saying, Look. And I looked, and I beheld a man, and he was dressed in a white robe. I think it's remarkable and interesting to consider John in this white robe. Of course, we'll learn later that this is John. Since in his own vision, he is the one who's seeing other heavenly beings in white robes. But in this case, John is that heavenly being. That would be an interesting twist for someone who was familiar with the New Testament and was then introduced to the Book of Mormon and was reading this vision. And the angel said unto me, in verse 20, Behold one of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. In verse 21, Behold, he shall see and write the remainder of these things, yea, and also many things which have been. So these things has reference to the things that Nephi was just telling us about in verse 17, when he's talking about the work of the Father commencing. And the angel is telling Nephi that this apostle, one of the twelve apostles of the Lamb who's dressed in a white robe, has covered the same territory, has seen the same vision, and has written about it. And so in verse 25, Nephi will be told not to write these same things. So verse 21 says, Behold, he shall see and write the remainder of these things, yea, and also many things which have been, telling Nephi that John will have seen into the past as well. And, and we know that uh, because we can think of when John described seals. Uh, he describes the seven seals, but he describes these earlier epochs that even preceded him. So this tells us that this was definitely a panoramic vision that spanned the past and the future for John, and the same is true here for Nephi. It also reminds us that prophecy really is a gift that allows for the interpretation of the past as well as the future. Now that's something that's explained in the book of Mosiah when Ammon visits King Limhi. When it says in verse 21 that this apostle shall write the remainder of these things, 
We can read this in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet, talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will shew thee things which must be hereafter. So that would be the same things again, which Nephi was just moving into as he was getting into verse 17. Then verse 22 says, And he shall also write concerning the end of the world. Wherefore the things which he shall write are just and true. And behold, they are written in the book which thou beheld proceeding out of the mouth of the Jew. And at the time they proceeded out of the mouth of the Jew, or at the time the book proceeded out of the mouth of the Jew, the things which were written were plain and pure and most precious and easy to the understanding of all men. So again, at this point in time, there was a time when this record that John contributed to was plain and pure and most precious and easy to the understanding. Those are the descriptors that the angel gives Nephi. So if we read the Bible as we have it today uh, with the benefit of the Joseph Smith translation and the other books or records or scriptures of the Restoration, and if we do that in the Spirit, the phrase that Nephi has used in this vision, then that's something like reading the plain and precious edition of the Bible. And we can read the plain and precious edition of John's vision with the help of this supplemental material. If we do this in the Spirit, I think it's possible for us to be transported to that same visionary realm and to be afforded a view of these beautiful things in their plainness. And when these things are in their plainness, then we will see the Lamb who was slain at the very center of all of these visionary images. And so I think in that way, this can be plain and precious to us as well. Verse 24 And behold, the things which this apostle of the Lamb shall write are many things which thou hast seen. And behold, the remainder shalt thou see. Reminding us again of the overlap between the things that Nephi is seeing in vision and the things that John will later see in vision. But then Nephi is given this instruction in verse 25. But the things which thou shalt see hereafter, thou shalt not write. For the Lord God hath ordained the apostle of the Lamb of God, that he should write them. This reminds us that there are a lot of things that Nephi saw that he did not convey to us in writing. And we learn later in this chapter that that was certainly true for Lehi as well. We've, we already kind of know that, but this reminds us of that. And and we can read in the in the Gospels, for example, John chapter 20, verse 30, it says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And John chapter 21, verse 25 says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the words itself, the world itself, could not contain the books that should be written. It's natural for us to ask at this point what other prophets may have seen 
these same images. Verse 26 hints towards this, saying, And also others who have been, to them hath he shown all things. I've suggested previously when we covered the book of Revelation that this term, all things, uh, could be the name, in a way, of this grand panoramic vision that Nephi is seeing here and that John will later see and that was also viewed by many others. And we'll read some commentary on that in just a second. Then the verse goes on and says, And they have written them, and they are sealed up to come forth in their purity according to the truth which is in the Lamb, in the own due time of the Lord, unto the house of Israel. The McConkian Millet commentary says, This verse seems to be a specific reference to the vision had by the brother of Jared and the record made and sealed up by him. And we read about that in Ether chapter 3, verses 22 through 27. When the day comes, no doubt it will be millennial, that the people of the earth rend the veil of unbelief that covers the hearts and minds of even many of the faithful, then shall the panoramic vision given to Nephi, as well as those given to Adam, Enoch, Noah, Mahanrai Moriankamer, of course that's the brother of Jared, Abraham, Moses, Joseph Smith, and others, be open to all the obedient. When verse 26 says that uh, others who have seen these things uh, and have written them as well, but that they are sealed up to come forth in their purity, we can see evidence that of that in other passages. For example, Daniel chapter 12, verse 9, And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Suggesting to us that Daniel has written about these things and that at some point in the future we'll have access to those writings. Back to the brother of Jared. Here's Ether chapter 3, verse 21. And it came to pass that the Lord said unto the brother of Jared, Behold, thou shalt not suffer these things which ye have seen and heard to go forth unto the world until the time cometh that I shall glorify my name in the flesh. Wherefore ye shall treasure up the things which ye have seen and heard and show it to no man. Then Ether chapter 4, verse 5, Wherefore the Lord hath commanded me to write them, and I have written them. And he commanded me that I should seal them up, and he he also hath commanded that I should seal up the interpretation thereof. Wherefore I have sealed up the interpreters according to the commandment of the Lord. Doctrine and Covenants section 35, verse 18, says, And I have given unto him the keys of the mystery of those things which have been sealed, even things which were from the foundation of the world, and the things which shall come from this time until the time of my coming. If he abide in me, and if not, another will I plant in his stead. And now this apostle is named, as Nephi is viewing him in this vision. In verse 27, it says, And I, Nephi, heard and bear record that the name of the apostle of the Lamb was John, according to the word of the angel. Here's some interesting commentary by Ogden and Skinner. The name of John the Revelator was known and recorded centuries before he was born, as were the names of Moses, Cyrus, uh, and that's uh, Isaiah said that, and Mary, who is uh, prophesied of and named in Mosiah during King Benjamin's address, and also in Alma chapter 7, Joseph Smith, who's named in 2 Nephi chapter 3, and especially Jesus Christ, who is named in Moses, and also in Second Nephi, and in King Benjamin's address in Mosiah chapter 3. 
John's record of the sweeping vision seen by Lehi, Nephi, and others is called the Book of Revelation. Nephi and John saw the same things, and their accounts contain many of the same images. Tree of Life, Great and Abominable Church, the restoration of the gospel, and so forth. However, Nephi's account emphasizes the first coming of Jesus Christ and the Meridian dispensation, while John's account emphasizes the second coming of Jesus Christ, the end of the final dispensation, and the millennium. Then Nephi confirms that there is a limit to what he is allowed to write to us. And in verse 28 says, And behold, I, Nephi, am forbidden, that I should write the remainder of the things which I saw and heard. Wherefore the things which I have written sufficeth me, and I have written but a small part of the things which I saw. This is reminiscent of a statement once made by the prophet Joseph Smith, who said, I could explain a hundredfold more than I ever have of the glories of the kingdoms manifested to me in the vision, were I permitted, and were the people prepared to receive them. Then as Nephi is coming to the end, the entire end of this great vision spanning these four chapters, he says in verse 29, And I bear record that I saw the things which my father saw. And the angel of the Lord did make them known unto me. So the desire that Nephi expressed several chapters back to see the things which his father saw have now been realized. And then Nephi ends in verse 30 by saying, And now I make an end of speaking concerning the things which I saw while I was carried away in the Spirit. And if all the things which I saw are not written, the things which I have written are true. And thus it is. Amen. So this might remind us of Nephi's language. At the very beginning of 1 Nephi chapter 11, verse 1, where he tells us that he was caught away in the Spirit, and that is how his grand vision begins. And now here, at the end of the vision, at the end of chapter 14, he says, this is what I saw when I was carried away in the Spirit. So, almost the same verbiage. He gives us that idea then, at the very beginning of the vision, and at the very end, that having had a sincere desire to see the things which his father saw, He took this desire to the Lord in the prayer of faith with the knowledge that the Holy Ghost can make things manifest to those who diligently seek him, as he expressed at the end of chapter 10, suggesting to us that we too can have our prayers answered according to a similar pattern. And with respect to the things that are seen in this vision and that are discussed here and that were presented by Lehi's vision, and by Nephi's vision, and that are presented in the book of Revelation, that if we will read these things through the power of the Holy Ghost, that we too, as readers, might be carried away in the Spirit and be given a greater understanding of the symbols that are contained in these records. Well, that brings us then to the end of 1 Nephi chapter 14.